Jodcast, powering up your flux capacitor, with Megan Argo, David Alt, Jen Gupta, Stuart Lowe, Ian Morrison, Tim O'Brien, Nick Rattenbury, and Neil Young. The Jodcast, April 1990 edition. Hello and welcome to side A of this audio cassette of the Jodcast for spring 1990 from the Nuffield Radio Astronomy Labs at Jodrell Bank in Cheshire. I'm David Alt, and joining us this time are Nick, Neil, Jen, and Stuart. Hi, guys. Hello. Hello. We hope that wherever you are, you've had clear nights to start off the 90s, and hopefully you enjoyed the previous cassette, and it wasn't delayed or lost in the Christmas post. We've had a few letters since the last show, and even some faxes, but we'll talk about them a little bit later on. Now, some of you even complained that our latest presenter, Jen, wasn't on the last show. So, Jen, tell us where you were. Well, I've been somewhere that's far more exciting than, than Cheshire. <laughs> I've been at the Very Large Array in New Mexico doing some observations for my supervisor, Ian Brown. And we've been, so what we've been doing is we've been observing about 800 compact radio sources, and these are going to be used as reference sources for the uh, Merlin Array, and we've got an interview about the Merlin Array later on. <laughs> and also in this episode, we'll be finding out about the upcoming launch of the Hubble Space Telescope, and we'll find out what the new Cosmic Background Explorer satellite might tell us about the universe. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Megan Argo. In the news this issue. Supernova 1987A, three years on. The Sudbury Neutrino Observatory gets final approval. And ESO to begin a major new survey of the northern sky. The 24th of February marked the three-year anniversary of the supernova 1987A, and it continues to evolve as the ejector expand into the interstellar medium of the surrounding tarantula nebula. At a distance of just 168,000 light-years, it is the closest supernova since the invention of the telescope almost 400 years ago, and presents an ideal opportunity to observe the evolution of a remnant as it expands. Since the peak optical brightness was reached in the second half of 1987, the brightness has been decreasing exponentially as the supernova fades. But, in an IAU circular published on December the 29th last year, astronomers at the European Southern Observatory present results which show that the decline in the light curve has levelled off. Indications that this were happening had already been observed, but the evidence is now clearer and the results confirmed. The data suggests that a previously undetected energy source is contributing to the total energy output, and the researchers argue that the most likely source is radiation from an as-yet undetected pulsar, absorbed and re-radiated by the dust in the nebula. As well as optical light and gamma rays, the explosion of supernova 1987A also generated a massive burst of neutrinos. These particles were picked up by a detector at Kamioka in Japan, and another located underneath Lake Erie in the USA. Detecting neutrinos is not so easy, since they only interact very weakly with other matter. These two detectors both consist of a large tank of water, surrounded by photomultiplier tubes, that detect the faint light generated when a neutrino interacts with a proton in the water. The larger the tank, the more protons you have, and the more chance you have of an interaction. In January this year, a project to construct a new neutrino detector in Canada was given final approval. The Sudbury Neutrino Observatory will cost $52 million to construct, 
and will consist of a tank containing 1,000 tons of heavy water, surrounded by 2,000 photomultiplier tubes, buried more than a mile underground. Scheduled to be completed within five years, the Sabri-Neutrino Observatory will investigate neutrino emissions from the Sun, investigating why current experiments have only detected one-third of the expected number. On January the 26th, the European Southern Observatory announced a collaboration with Palomar Observatory, which will produce the first new astronomical atlas of the northern sky in over three decades. The observations will be carried out using the refurbished 40-inch telescope at Mount Palomar, and will result in a collection of 2,682 photographic plates, showing stars up to seven times fainter than the existing Palomar Sky Survey. Taking ten years to produce, and scheduled to be complete by the year 2000, a full set of glass copies, of which fewer than ten will be produced, will cost 460,000 Deutschmarks, roughly $270,000, while a full set of film copies will cost a mere 60,000 Deutschmarks. And finally, the next few years are looking exciting for both planetary exploration and space-based astronomy, with several new missions launched recently. The Galileo spacecraft was launched on October the 18th last year on board the space shuttle Atlantis, and is now on its way to Jupiter, where it will study the planet and its moons, as well as sending a probe plunging into the thick atmosphere of the solar system's largest planet. One month later, the Cosmic Microwave Background Explorer Kobe, was launched aboard a Delta rocket from the Vandenberg Air Force Base in California, with the aim of mapping the faint radiation left over from the Big Bang. This year should also see the launch of the Hubble Space Telescope, one of the most eagerly anticipated space-based observatories. Following many delays, Hubble is scheduled for launch on board the Space Shuttle during March. Thank you for that, Megan. And as Megan said, after many years of planning and many delays, the Hubble Space Telescope is due to launch later in the month. We talked to Professor Mike Disney of University College Cardiff to find out what this new space-based telescope will do. We're joined by Professor Mike Disney from University College Cardiff. Thanks, Mike, for joining us on the Jodcast. You're very welcome. Now, this is very exciting at the moment. We're just um, less than a month away from the launch of the Hubble Space Telescope which will be launched from the Kennedy Space Center, I think, and is the first optical space telescope of any big size to be launched. Can you just tell us a bit about how we've got to where we are with Hubble and why it's taken us so long to launch a space telescope? Yes, well, the idea of Hubble came in 1923 uh, with Hermann Oberth in uh, Romanian. But it only became feasible launching a telescope above the atmosphere, of course, when you got the right rockets around. And so um, the advent of the arms race essentially built big enough rockets to um, launch something large enough with a large enough mirror to make it up for a really exciting science. And it, you can have wonderful resolution from space, but you also need collecting area in order to collect enough light. So this uh, exercise started about 1975. Uh, ESA, the European Space Agency, got involved in uh, about 1976, and that's where I got involved with it. So that's about 14 years ago. And we've all been working jolly hard to get it launched as quickly as possible. 
but you remember the Challenger disaster four years ago and that held us up and so forth so we're very dependent on the shuttle but hopefully fingers crossed everything's going right now and uh, we're looking forward to the launch immensely it is very exciting can you tell us a bit about the mirrors involved in the telescope a lot of people at home will will have telescopes with lenses made of glass the refracting telescopes but this one uses a mirror doesn't it Yes, it's a, it's a fairly conventional reflecting telescope. It's just that the uh, accuracy of the mirror has to be much higher than it would be from the ground, simply because the performance we require is so much better. So on a ground-based telescope, you can, you can polish the mirror to about wavelength over uh, 10, and that'll be fine. We've got to polish the mirrors to a wavelength over 50, and, of course, we want to go down to a much shorter wavelength, to about 1,200 angstroms, instead of 3,600. So that's, that's in the ultraviolet, is it? That's the ultraviolet, yes, near into ultraviolet. And one of the great things about uh, a, a space telescope, of course, it, it's not limited in wavelength. And so you can have a much wider wavelength grasp, which is another good reason for having a reflecting telescope. So the limits you were mentioning there on... The, the lack of limits from being in space are due to being above the Earth's atmosphere, aren't they? Yes, I mean, that's a great thing. The, the Earth's atmosphere, a typical large telescope, has about 10 to 20 tonnes of air on top of it <laughs> along its passage through the atmosphere. So it's not surprising if you're looking through 10 or 20 tonnes of turbulent air that you, the whole universe you're looking at gets scrambled up together, and that's what happens. Right, so even with the new 10-metre telescopes that are starting to appear... The Hubble is going to be better than those, I think, isn't it? Oh, unquestionably, yes. I mean, uh, it's a far more powerful instrument. And what sort of science is Hubble going to do? What sort of objects will do you think it will be looking at? It's hard to think of any branch of astrophysics that won't be revolutionised uh, by Hubble. I mean, I, I can talk about some of the things I'm particularly interested in. For example, we're very interested in uh, supermassive black holes at the middle of galaxies. Uh, with Hubble, we are, ought to be able to make measurements close into the very nucleus and see the effect of the stars and things swirling around in a massive gravitational field. Uh, another thing that I'm interested in is probably connected is quasars. You've all heard of quasars. They, they look, uh, they have very high redshifts and they're too far away or too small to be seen except as points of light. With Hubble, we should actually see them and see what the heck's going on. Right. Do you think... I mean, at the moment we know about nine planets, so there's all the way out to Pluto from Mercury, the closest to the Sun. We've never found any planets around other stars. Do you think Hubble has the resolution, maybe, to, to spot planets going around other stars? Yes, well, we've all thought about that. Um, the problem is not so much the resolution. It's the enormous contrast in light between the star and the planet. So it's about 100 million. We would expect a Jupiter around a nearby star to be 100 million times fainter. It's just possible, but it seems on the very margin of present technology up there. Right. Of course, the thing that most of, we, most of us involved with the telescope think is that the biggest discoveries which it will make will come as a complete surprise. The analogy we all use is Galileo's spyglass of 16... 109, and uh, nobody, he had, and nobody else had any idea what it was going to discover. 
and the leap between the human eye and Galileo's spyglass and a ground-based telescope in Hubble is about the same order. So I think I'd be very disappointed if we don't make some shocking discoveries over the next 10 years. Very good. And will you be lucky enough to have the chance to go to watch the launch? Uh, I won't be this time, unfortunately. I'm just uh, getting um, married. But um, I'd love to go. I really would love to go. And if I can, if I can, if my wife will let me, I certainly will. Very good. Well, we wish you the best of luck with the Hubble Space Telescope and hope it produces lots of fantastic results. Thank you very much. I'm going to devote the next year to doing nothing else about thinking about Hubble. And we're going over to America, my wife and family and everyone, and we'll just be doing Hubble Space Telescope research. Very good. Thank you very much. Thank you for that, Stuart. And as Mike mentioned there, the mirrors on Hubble are amongst the most accurate mirrors ever made. It's amazing the amount of precision that's gone into them. So once it gets launched, we'll have amazing images fairly quickly. So What size are those mirrors again? They're somewhere like eight feet, so in metric that's about two and a half metres or something. Wow. So not the biggest mirrors in the world, but... They're not, but they're going to be above the planet, and that's what's special. Fantastic. Maybe we, should, we ought to... Uh... Send Jen back over there, back to America, to uh, look at the launch of Hubble. I wish, although I did spend most of my time watching cartoons when I was over there earlier in the year. Anything in particular? This new cartoon that's, that's come out called like, The Samsons or something, it's more aimed at adults, which is quite strange. It's about a, a dysfunctional family who are yellow, and uh, I don't think it will catch on. So it's like the Smurfs crossed with the Flintstones? Something, yeah, with a little bit of Jetsons chucked in there. Right. That's weird. Sounds odd. Yeah. Uh, Now, though, I think we have some more news about some telescopes and observatories around the world. I'll go first. Okay. Um, Well, Stuart just said there that Hubble is going to be better because it's above the the atmosphere. But you might remember last year we covered the first light of the new technology telescope in La Silla in Chile. Um, This is a European Southern Observatory telescope. And it's not the largest optical telescope in the world, but it is the most advanced. It's using a new kind of technology called active optics. Um, so it will, it will produce very sharp optical images, and it might even rival the Hubble Space Telescope. Of course, the biggest telescopes are start, just about starting to be to be ready, which are about 10 metres, which is amazing. I think a 10-metre size um, mirror. Yeah, I think the largest at the moment is 6 metres. What is active optics, though? Well, active optics is a fantastic new technology which works to counteract the distorting effects of the atmosphere. As you know, light coming from a distant object gets distorted by the intervening atmosphere and it looks all blurry on our telescope. Active optics is a way to account for that. And so the new telescopes have uh, flexible mirrors which are distorted in such a way that they correct for the distortion of the atmosphere. They turn the distortion back into a sharp image. Sounds very complicated to to engineer, though. You need computers to control the many motors which distort the mirror. So presumably you have to do this lots of times a second. Yes, 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 many, many times a second too, because that's the rate of change of the atmosphere. That's impossible. That's very difficult. So do you think in five years they'll have that properly? Who knows? We'll see how good these systems actually are in practice. Right. But for now, we've got Hubble anyway. That's right. And in observatory news, the Royal Greenwich Observatory officially moved from Hurstmonceux Castle to the grounds of Cambridge University Institute of Astronomy. Now, certainly this is a big move for such an historical observatory, but of course it has moved before, obviously, from Greenwich to Hurstmonceux, so it's on the move again. And it certainly delighted the uh, Professor of Astronomy at Cambridge, 
Sir Martin Rees, and uh, it'll be great to have a chat with him sometime too, hopefully mm. in the future. We'll see if we can arrange that. Yeah, at some point Manchester was even in the running for hosting the Royal Observatory. I think people like um, the astronomer royal, Sir Francis Graham Smith, even visited. Um, maybe one day we'll interview him about that and find out what he thought of Manchester. We'll keep you in touch. And other people have been keeping in touch with us because it's now time to look inside our post bag. Uh, so before we move on to the next interview, what have we got? Nick? First of all, we have a correction. Stella writes in to us and says that in our interview about Project METI from the SETI Institute, we mistakenly referred to Space Invaders having been released in 1980. It was, in fact, released in June 1978 on arcades in Japan. It was released on the Atari 2600 in 1980. So we do apologize for that mistake and any inconvenience it may have caused. Okay, and in the faxes, we actually had a fax this month. We love getting faxes from people. Yeah, great. There's fun. someone who's people for some reason on faxes that people don't use their real name. So someone called Earth Unit has written in to say, Hi, talk about Happy Mondays. It is when you receive the latest Jodcast episode, another fan dabadozy show, folks. Though it did seem to take a bit longer than the last one to be delivered. Earth Unit says you can only put this down to the postman being in a state of shock over rumours of the BBC killing off Doctor Who. No, while still five regenerations well. to go. I know. And I want to be one of those five regenerations <laughs> when I give up astronomy and go into acting. So do you think there'll be another series? Well, I hope, well, they've got the, the shows already in, well, they've got the scripts already in the bag, so there's right, no so reason why, not to why season 27 shouldn't go ahead. Um, there's just a bit of a, a crisis at the BBC, let's just yeah. hope it, it blows over. And as Earth Unit says, does the BBC expect us to survive on repeats of Thunderbirds? Oh, we need Doctor Who. He, although Sylvester McCoy is going is hopefully going to be uh, leaving at the end of this this forthcoming series, season twenty seven. Right. So, um, well, there have been a couple of people put forward for that. Richard Griffiths is apparently in the the running for the really for the eighth Doctor. Yes, oh, yeah. coming in end of nineteen ninety. Getting older. I know. And Earth Unit also said that they'd written to Bob Geldof asking to arrange a Jod Aid concert so they could have a few extra Jod casts a year. But oh. we can only cope with four. Unfortunately, copying all these cassette tapes takes a lot of effort, so we're keeping it at four for now. Yeah. Um, so look out for the for the summer for edition. The summer edition. Yes, at the beginning of July. Yeah, although it might be slightly delayed. It depends yeah. on the World Cup. Yes. In Italy. That's true. Yeah. Anyway, thank you also to Andrew Glester, Rob Bowman, and. A listener from America called Rapid Eye who sent us a postcard as well. We love oh, getting postcards. All of these, these pseudonyms, it's terrible. I know. People have started, stopped using their real names. I'm not quite yeah. sure why. Anonymity, is that the way of I the future? I blame Usenet. <laughs> so now we have our interview with our very own Richard Davis about the new Merlin antenna in Cambridge. Okay, we're joined by Dr. Richard Davis from Jodrell Bank, the Nuffield Radio Astronomy Laboratories in, here in Cheshire. Welcome to the Jodcast, Richard. Good morning. Now, we're quite excited here at Jodrell because we've got, we're, we're getting upgrades to our instrument that's called, now called Merlin, it was called MTRLI, the multi-telement... Multi-telescope radio-linked interferometer, now Thank renamed multi-element radio-linked interferometer network, Merlin. And Merlin's a lot easier to say, I must say. It most certainly is. So I'm glad that we've done that. Now, just give us a brief background to Merlin. What exactly is it? Well, we started off in the early days just doing single baseline interferometry. We pioneered the idea of linking 
radio telescopes together by radio waves. The person who really pioneered this was Henry Palmer. And uh, we came up with the idea of building uh, a, a system of telescopes which would simulate the effect of having a single telescope uh, 100 kilometers in diameter and now with a 32 meter uh, over 200 kilometers in diameter uh, all linked together by uh, radio waves. So why do we want a huge telescope of that size? Right, now the problem is that uh, the resolution of any optical telescope is given by the relationship of the aperture uh, divided by the, the wavelength. So for optical instruments uh, they don't have to be too big. The coming Hubble Space Telescope is only two meters in diameter and yet has a resolution of a twentieth of an arc second. However, if we want to make such an instrument with comparable resolution in the radio, uh, given radio waves are the order of centimetres for the wavelength, it turns out that they have to be about the size of England. Right. About 200 kilometres. So, in fact, the, Merlin, the new Merlin array, when it's fully functioning, uh, will have what we hope will be the resolution of the Hubble Space Telescope optically. So the two will be very well matched to each other. To, to make this new Merlin, you mentioned that there's a 32-metre telescope Whereabouts is that? Yes, well, each of the individual elements, we'd like them all to be as big as possible. We'd like them all to be like the giant uh, telescope at Jodrell Bank. Uh, but unfortunately, we can't afford to build those because they cost us uh, typically something like £60 million each. Uh, most of the telescopes in Merlin are about 25 metres. But as you go to telescopes further away, the more distant ones, you really need something bigger. And so we've got the... the the Jodrell Bank Telescope at this end, as it were, and uh, the, the biggest thing we could possibly build, and the largest telescope that's been built for many, many years, is a 32-metre, uh, which we're currently building at Cambridge. Right, and is it a similar design to the, the very large array in the US? Uh, the 25-metre the telescopes, uh, most of them are, three of them are actually copies of the uh, very large array. Uh, the 32-metre is, is a different design. It's a, it actually was originally designed to be a communications antenna, which we've modified uh, to be a radio telescope. How's the construction going? Oh, it's going extremely well. All the panels have arrived and the, uh, the main structure of the telescope's complete and we're currently uh, adjusting all the, all the panels on the surface. I guess that's a very time-consuming job. You have to, if you have to adjust every individual panel separately. It is. Each individual panel has four adjusters and uh, we, we're using a pentaprism optical system um, to line up all the uh, s panels accurate to uh, something like a tenth of a millimetre. A tenth of a millimetre? That's, That's right, across the 32 metre diameter. Wow. When will we be able to expect the upgraded Merlin to be producing some, some science? Uh, well, we, we should be going with the 32 metre in the order of uh, six months' time. As soon as that? Well, yes. Uh, once we've finished adjusting the panels, we can start using it. Very good. We wish you the best of luck with the future of Merlin and hope it continues for many years to come. So, Richard Davis, thank you very much. And thank you. Thank you for that. And now we've come to the end of side A of this edition of the Jodcast, so it's time to turn over. But please remember to rewind to the beginning of side B before playing the next side. See you in a bit. Welcome back to the Jodcast Spring 1990 tape. Coming up later, we find out about our current understanding of the universe, but now it's time for our regular astronomy theatre. 
Now, last year saw the release of a film about some time travellers in a phone box. Not the ones that I'm uh, so keen on, but we're presenting to you now Neil and Dave's excellent adventure. San Jardro. My name is Neil S. Preston Esquire, and this is the most esteemed and totally bodacious Dave Fyodor Logan. Party on, dudes, and we are Wildbarians! But now it's our most excellent pleasure to give you our most triumphant science report. We've been to the past, we've been to the future, and it is most resplendent. Totally awesome. Dude! Yeah! And we have brought back with us the most totally outstanding babe in all of history! The first dudette of the planet Mars! Rock on! So tell us, God's babe, what's the future like? Well, I'm from the year 2038, and there we have computers as big as your house. They run everything for you. We have cities in orbit around Earth, and all your daily needs are taken care of. Outstanding! Totally! Is that like all your needs? Oh yes. You get to sit around and do science all day long. No way! Bogus! Oh, wait, dude! This chick, like, totally digs the science thing. And this is, like, for us, most esteemed science project. Yeah? Yeah. Science all day? That sounds like a most totally bodacious future. A most awesome thanks for coming, Astral Chick. I do have a message to bring from the future. Be excellent to one another. And, jod on, dudes. Awesome! Jod on! Jod on! And now our final interview is about the recently launched Cosmic Background Explorer satellite. Now the first results were announced at the American Astronomical Society, which uh, was the temperature of the CMB. But for more information, here's our interview. Okay, joining us is Dr. Richard Batty from the University of Manchester. Welcome to the Jodcast, Richard. Thank you. It's been quite exciting the last few months. We've had quite a few launches of all sorts of um, spacecraft and rockets. And in late November last year, we had the launch of the Cosmic Background Explorer, which people are calling COBE. Can you just give us some background as to what we know about cosmology? Um, things have changed a lot in the last hundred years or so, haven't they? So in the 1920s, we discovered that the universe is expanding. Uh, this was done by Edwin Hubble, and he discovered the famous Hubble Law. And uh, over over the years, uh, people uh, did work on, on cosmology, and eventually, in, 19, uh, in the 1960s, uh, Penzias and Wilson discovered the cosmic microwave background. And this was a, this is a, a, a radiation background which comes from the Big Bang, and was predicted by the models of cosmology that uh, people talked about. And this cosmic microwave background is what Kobe is trying to detect. Penzias and Wilson did their observations with a huge horn antenna on the ground, didn't they? Um, why have we put this one into space? Well, it, the space is a much cleaner environment. There's lots of things on the ground that, that will interfere with the measurements. So in, in order to make the, the most precise possible measurements, it's better to go out into space, which is much more uh, clean. There's no man-made man uh, radiation. And as I said, COBE was launched in November... And it's already released the first results, I think, hasn't it? So, basically, there are two 
uh, well, there are actually three instruments on, on uh, COBE, but two of them are related to cosmology. One is called FIRAS, the uh, Far Infrared uh, Spectrometer, and uh, the results of this have been uh, released already. And basically what it has done is it's measured the, uh, the spectrum of radiation uh, over a w relatively wide range, and it has shown uh, that the spectrum is compatible with a black body. So this uh, is the spectrum, it's looking at lots of different frequencies and yes. comparing the amount of radiation it's receiving. The, the it's comparing the intensity as a function of frequency. They have then fitted this, this curve to a black body spectrum, and they found that the the temperature is 2.7 Kelvin. So that's about minus 270 degrees Celsius. That's right, yeah. Right, so it's very, very cold. Um, why is it so cold? <laughs> that's an interesting question. So the universe was very hot initially, and as the universe has expanded, the temperature has gone down. So initially the temperature was enormous. And at, over time, it's 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 gone. You know, as the universe expands, it gets redshifted, and um, now the universe is, of course, very big, and that means there's been a, essentially a dilution of the temperature to 2.7 Kelvin. So, what does this temperature tell us about um, cosmology? Does it tell us about the age of the universe? Or? Well, the first thing is it confirms the basic picture of the uh, hot Big Bang model. Um, the, the hot Big Bang model predicts the dense, uh, sorry, the, the temperature of, of this radiation. And the, the, the specific value of the temperature actually tells us how many photons there are in the universe. Wow, that's pretty impressive. So yes. how many are there? Uh, <laughs> I don't know the number off the top of my head, but uh, one could work it out very simply. There's a very simple formula relating the number of photons, number density of photons to uh, the temperature essentially because it is a black body. So that was FIRAS. Um, you also said there's some other instruments on board, so can you tell us what they're going to produce? Okay, so uh, the, the other instrument that's uh, primarily concerned with cosmology is called the DMR instrument, and this uh, um, instrument is designed to measure not just the temperature, but the temperature differences on, on the sky, so from point to point. And uh, we're, so we're hoping that the results of that will come out in, in a couple of years' time. And uh, what that will do will hopefully allow us to constrain the models of the universe. So there are various ideas about how the initial fluctuations of the universe were created and the stuff that's in the universe, the, the matter content of the universe. So the, the theory that is most popular is an idea called inflation, and this is a period of exponential expansion at the beginning of the universe. So the universe expanded very, very quickly. Right at the beginning. Time. Right. And during that period, quantum mechanics led to fluctuations in the, in the, in the background space. And these are essentially the, the seeds of galaxy formation and ultimately what has led to the, the, the galaxies and, the, and, and uh, ultimately to us. Right. The, the theories are trying to predict uh, that and they're, you know, that's one idea. The, the other thing that it might tell us is what is in the universe, whether the universe is full of dark matter. Dark matter is something that's been suggested from the rotations of galaxies. Indeed. So, so dark matter is something that um, when people look at the speeds at which stars and, uh, are flowing around in galaxies, they find that the, the speed at which they're going is incompatible with the amount of light that they see. If, if, so if all the if, if all the matter in the universe is just made, made of stars, 
then the things wouldn't be going anywhere near as fast. You were suggesting that's that's one of the ideas, inflation of the universe. Are there other ideas as well? So there's some other ideas. Uh, Many ideas have already been ruled out, but probably the most popular idea that competes with inflation is the idea of of, of what are called topological defects. So topological defects are exotic objects that might have been formed during uh, the history of the universe. And if they're still hanging around in the universe today, they will be creating fluctuations as they go, as they move through the universe. And they could, they can also lead to a similar kind of spectrum to, to what, is, uh, what is predicted by inflation. But hopefully subsequent observations will, be allow, will allow us to tell the difference between those models. Thinking about the, the future of the universe, the... Do we know if there's enough matter in the universe for the gravity to overcome the expansion of the universe and somehow bring it to a stop or even make it collapse again? Okay, so, so it's, it, the, the, there's a critic, what we call the critical density of the universe, and the critical density is very similar to something like the, the escape velocity of Earth. So th- there's a particular velocity at which, if, you could, if, you, if a spacecraft is going at a particular speed, it can, it can um, escape the gravitational pull of the Earth. Well, if the universe is a particular density this means that it will either expand forever or it might contract. And one of the predictions of inflation is that it's actually exactly at this critical density, which is you know, similar to being exactly at the escape velocity. Of so it. does that mean the universe would come to a stop in expanding? It will come to a stop at infinite time. So it slowly can... It, it's it's slowing... It will, it, if, if it is exactly the critical density, then the, the expansion of the universe will slow down and grind to a halt ultimately at infinite time well hopefully in the next few years we'll find out the results from Kobe and hopefully they'll shed some light on some of these cosmological models of the universe yes I hope so thank you very much thank you thanks for that and that was the last interview for this audio cassette the next episode though will contain an awful lot of interviews because we're going to be on location We are. We're going to the Royal Astronomical Society's out-of-town meeting. We unfortunately couldn't go to the one last year. It was in the Netherlands, and our SERC funding didn't stretch that far. So we will be going to this one. It's in Glasgow, in Scotland, and it's supposed to be lots of fun. We'll get plenty of interviews there, so look out for them on a future cassette. You'll be sending Jen and Neil out with the the Jodcast tape recorder, then? We will. We'll be taking it up on the train. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, we'll have plenty of interviews on future episodes. Fantastic, and we, uh, we hope you get some good skies up there in Scotland. Uh, and you can take the wise words, of course, of Ian Morrison with you, because here he is to tell us what you can see in late spring and early summer of 1990. So let's have a look at the night sky in the spring and early summer. Well, about now, beginning of April, as we look to the south we see the constellation of Leo the Lion, like the lions in Trafalgar Square on its haunches. Up to the right of that is that rather nice constellation Gemini, with the bright stars Castor above and Pollux below. Below Gemini we see a single bright star. It's actually Procyon in Canis Minor. And you may see early enough setting in the west the lovely constellation of Orion the Hunter. High overhead is Ursa Major, the great bear, and we normally think of the plough, this asterism. The Americans call it the Big Dipper because it's the ladle 
that the farmer's wife used to use to ladle out the soup at lunchtime. And I'm sure every Boy Scout knows that if you go from the lower right star through the upper right star, they're the pointers, and that leads you towards the pole star. So we know where north is, at least if the sky is clear. As Leo and Gemini begin to set in the west, other constellations rise in the east. First of all, there's a very bright star, Arcturus, in the constellation of Butes. Below, to the left, is another little circlet of stars, rather lovely, called Corona Borealis, the northern crown. And then the constellation of Hercules. There's four stars making up what's called the keystone. If you look at the right hand, two stars of that keystone, and work your way out with the binoculars, you should see a little fuzzy glow. That's a rather lovely globular cluster, M13, the best that we see in the Northern Hemisphere. And just rising but low above the horizon are the constellations Sagittarius and Scorpius that become more obvious as we move into midsummer. And finally, there's a lovely region of sky we'll come back to a little bit later on, which contain the constellations of Cygnus the Swan, Lyra the Lyre, and Aquila the Eagle. They're bright stars, Deneb, Vega, and Altair, forming what we call the Summer Triangle. Okay, well, what about the planets? Well, if you look out into the sky after sunset, there's only one planet you can see, but that's very prominent, and that's the planet Jupiter. It's up in the constellation of Gemini, to the lower right of the sort of the right hand, the upper little man, not far away from a rather nice cluster called M35. So if you look with binoculars, you might well see M35 down to the right of Jupiter. That's certainly dominating the evening sky. It's um, in a nice part of the ecliptic. The planets we see tend to lie along the plane of the ecliptic, that's the plane of the solar system. And whereas sometimes we see the sun high in the sky and sometimes quite low, the planets are the same. At the moment, Jupiter is nice and high in the ecliptic, gets up to about 6 degrees elevation. But there are some times when it's sort of down in Scorpius and Sagittarius, the other side of the ecliptic, when it may only reach an elevation of 24 degrees. And that's a problem because then there's much atmosphere for us to look through in trying to see how it looks. To see the other planets, you've got to get up early, I'm afraid, and as we get towards the end of May, even earlier. But essentially, we have Venus, Mars, and Saturn in a line up and to the right of where the sun rises in the morning. And I noticed on the 18th of April, coming up quite soon, that the third quarter moon will be just below the planet Saturn. Saturn is quite bright at the moment because its rings are quite wide open. As it orbits the Sun, twice each orbit, the rings become almost edge-on, and then Saturn appears far less bright. But it's a lovely view of the rings at the moment, but other times, as we go into the future, you don't see it quite so well. So that's a good thing to do. Get up early in the morning, particularly the beginning of April, before the, the nights get too short. You have a chance to see a lovely skyscape, Venus, Mars, and Saturn. Well, what about um, any highlights of the month? Well, on December the 6th last year, uh, Roger Austin discovered a comet. And as these things go, it's named Comet Austin. And initial predictions were it could really become a very bright comet this sort of late April, May, June. Now, so far, I have to say, it's not really living up to expectations. Um, 
the thought now is it may only reach about fourth magnitude. So it would be visible to the unaided eye, but probably binoculars would see it better. But one thing is interesting about it, that I think on June the 6th, but anyway in June, we're, the Earth is going to cross the plane of the comet's orbit. Now, as comets go around the Sun, they leave lots of little bits of dust behind, little dust particles, and that forms a little bit of a sort of a street in the sky. And if we're in that street, we may well see quite a nice dark line where these particles line up along the orbit of Comet Austin. That's something to look out for. Perhaps there'll be pictures uh, in the press later in the year. Well, thinking of comets and thinking of Jupiter, uh, I did have a little silly thought, really. Um, Comets tend to come in, we see them once, they come in from the Oort cloud, or perhaps better, the Erpic Oort cloud, and they go out again, we never see them again. But if one happens to come fairly close to Jupiter, or for that matter Saturn, then it can perturb the orbit, and the comet can become captured, and becomes what we call a short-period comet. And, of course, the best example of these, of course, is, is, is Halley's Comet, that we all know of, that we did or did not see, not very well anyway, around 1985-1986, a few years ago. Now, if a comet happened to come particularly close to Jupiter, I suppose it's possible it could get trapped by Jupiter and become a sort of a satellite of Jupiter in a sort of perhaps an elongated orbit. Now, as the observations of Comet Halley a few years ago showed, comets are pretty woofly things, maybe 75% empty space. And so if a comet was captured and became a satellite of Jupiter, for example, and it got too close, it wouldn't be too difficult to come within what's known as the Roche limit. And that's when the tidal forces of a planet can break up something nearby. And that's probably the cause of the lovely ring structure that we have in Saturn. So it could be that a comet could break up into lots of little bits, and then there's a good chance they might impact on the surface, leaving some pretty dramatic scars. Well, it'd be a lovely thing to see. If it did happen, it might alert the governments of the world that impacts of comets, say on our Earth, could be pretty nasty things to happen. And perhaps they might set up some programs to see if they could detect not just comets, but so-called near-Earth asteroids that could someday be a threat to Earth. Well, let's see what happens. Okay, well, I've said quite a bit about what you can see in the night sky in, in April and May, but obviously it's a help if you've got something to refer to. So as we distribute this Jodcast on a cassette tape, we're proposing to add some sleeve notes, and much of what I've said we'll write up and add to them. And it's not impossible we could include them as a basic program uh, on the end of a tape. And uh, so many of you have got computers now that you can actually read off a tape, and that's how I load the programs into one of my little computers. And maybe you could then bring the, the, the text up on the screen. So, good hunting in the next few months. Thank you for that, Ian. And now on to our regular section of odds and ends. Stuart, what you've got? Well, earlier on we had an interview about the Hubble Space Telescope, which is a pretty big optical telescope. Listeners who have been listening for a while now will remember that we talked about the Green Bank Telescope in the US from collapsing at the end of 1988. It was sometime in November, I think. And there's some great pictures, actually. I've seen um, one of the people who was work a researcher doing some observations happened to take a picture on that day before the collapse and then came back the day after and got a picture after collapse. Which amazing pictures. Unfortunately, they don't photocopy very well, so we haven't added them to the show notes. But... The Green Bank Telescope, there was a senator in the United States who's got some funding for building a new one. 
and we've just heard news that 22 firms have made a bid to build the new telescope. So who knows? The money's there. There's people wanting to build it. So maybe in five or ten years, we'll have a new 300-foot um, telescope. Well, they'll be doing it exactly the same. That's 100 meters for people who want it metric. Are they just doing a carbon copy of the Green Bank Telescope? They just no. I think it's going to be a complete redesign. Um, so, well, considering the, the collapse, you'd hope it would be a bit different. It would, but that I mean the way that, that sort of <laughs> you'd hope it would be different to the one that collapsed. Sure, yeah. Now, another news: as of February in this year, there is a project underway to create a family portrait of the planets in our solar system using the Voyager spacecraft. So these are. There's two spacecrafts called Voyager, aren't there? Isn't yes, Voyager, Voyager 1, and 1 and Voyager 2. Voyager 2 is on its grand tour of the solar system heading out towards the outer planets. And it's going to be wonderful to see those outer planets in all their glorious mm. detail. But particularly, it's going to be wonderful to see our Earth from afar. What's it going to look like? A, a faint dot against a dark background. And of course, it's going to raise again that same old question. Are there other planets out there? other than those in our own solar system. Exciting times. It's very exciting. I can't wait to see the Earth from that distance. I mean, we've seen it from Apollo and, and things like that, but and from the space shuttle, but seeing the Earth from such a great distance will be amazing. It will. Do you think there'll be, there'll be any colour in the image? It's hard to say. Like green from all the plants? Could be white from the clouds. Wouldn't it be blue from all the water? I guess 70% of the, yeah. the mm. Earth is, is blue. We should Maybe. wait and see. Yeah. yeah. Well, um... Lots of questions there, and also lots of questions that have been answered by Dr. Tim O'Brien, who is here to answer all of your questions. Okay, we're joined by Dr. Tim O'Brien from Lancashire Polytechnic. Welcome back to the Judcast, Tim. Hi, Stuart. And thank you for going to answer the questions that listeners have sent us in by letter. The first letter comes from Christopher Lintot, who's 10 and from the south of England. He writes... Dear Dr. O'Brien, at school we are studying planets. We learned that there were nine of them, but my teacher said that there was once a planet X. Is this true? And are there planets around other suns? Hmm. How old's uh, Christopher? I think he says he's ten. Oh, right. Okay. It's a very advanced, uh, very advanced question. Um, so, yeah, there, there are nine planets. Um, uh, we don't know of any others. There's people have talked about whether there's a planet X or not. Um, perhaps orbiting. I mean, it wouldn't be any closer than Pluto, we don't think. We'd probably have seen it if it was closer than Pluto. Um, so it's probably farther out than Pluto. We don't think there are any big planets out there because uh, we'd have already seen them. I mean, I'm sure you're aware that we see planets through uh, light that's reflected from the sun rather than the planet shining itself. That's the big difference between a planet and a star. Um, but it's possible that there's small things out there, I guess. Um, we think that the comets all come from way out there, from something called the Oort Cloud. Um, and I guess maybe there's something beetling about out there farther away than Pluto that, that we might eventually spot, but we'd, we'd need some pretty uh, sophisticated telescopes to do that. So, uh, Would there be anything bigger than Pluto out there? Uh, I don't know. Who knows? We pro- probably, prob- probably not, I guess. But Probably uh, not something the size of Jupiter or anything. Oh, I, I think that would be very unlikely, yeah. I mean, if, apart from anything else, it would be a really big... Uh, perturbation on all the other small bodies orbiting out there, you know, the gravity of something as big as Jupiter would be, uh, yeah, it cause havoc in the Oort cloud. We'd have comets plunging in all the time, so uh, yeah, probably not. Christopher also asked um, if there were planets around other suns. 
it's something that um, obviously we're very interested in. The big problem with with, with understanding the solar system with and with understanding planets is that we've only got one example. Mm. Um, so there's only one planetary system known, which is the solar system, and uh, and really that's bad science um, because you know we like to have lots of different examples and lots of different conditions going on so we can understand the processes and at the moment we only have we only have the solar system so that's not good so we'd like to find planetary systems for basically for understanding planets in general but also because i suppose we're quite keen on um be very nice at some point to find a planet like the earth maybe going around another star like the sun because that'd be quite exciting for the in terms of whether there's life mm. out there on another planet so pete so we have been worrying about that um, the best evidence we have of, of planets so far is um, is from looking at infrared, um, using infrared telescopes and infrared satellites in particular, flying above the atmosphere, where you see uh, an excess of infrared emission, so that sort of heat radiation from longer than visible wavelengths, and that indicates the presence of sort of dusty disks around these stars. And there's a there's a famous one called Beta Pictoris, right. Beta Pic, which has this this dusty disk which looks like it's the sort of you know the the, the first stages of formation of, of planets, but so far we haven't actually found any any real planets going around other stars. Now that doesn't mean to say people aren't looking, and there's various ways which we've come up with for possibly finding them. Um, maybe sounds like Christopher's teacher's quite advanced at astronomy, so he may tell him the truth. But quite often when we're at school we get told that the sun sits still at the middle of the solar system and the planets orbit and, and the planets move around and the sun stays still. Now, of course, that's not true. Basically, it's like, a, it's like put, if, you put, if you put the sun on one end of a seesaw and you put Jupiter on the other end of a seesaw, then what would happen is the sun end would drop down because the sun's so much more massive than Jupiter. Um, but if you move the sort of point at which the seesaw pivots closer and closer and closer to the sun... Um, you would actually find a point just outside the surface of the sun where it would balance again. Mm. Um, and if you imagine that set up, and then you imagine taking the seesaw and actually spinning it round, that would result in Jupiter orbiting in a big circle, roughly, um, and the sun orbiting in a little one. Uh, and that's basically what's happening, is that as Jupiter orbits the sun, the sun's doing this sort of wobble. So the, te- the, the ideas that have been proposed are that we look for that wobble, um, basically because it's very hard to see the planet directly. Um, you know, we've thought about it, but it's a challenge, you know, the best, basically because the planet's very faint compared to the star and they're so far away. So the best idea was we had really are to, are to combine lots of telescopes together in, in an interferometer, it's called. Mm. Um, but those, those would probably have to be put on the moon or something. Right, so does that fit in with President Bush's plan to go to Mars, maybe? Yeah, well... Stop at the moon on the way and... Yeah, I think I think I think that might be a plan. Is that you might build a moon base to sort of give you a launch pad to head off to Mars if that happens. I still think it'll be a long time in the future if it does happen, though. Right. So, so actually, you know, yeah, to see planets directly, we need some technology that we really haven't developed yet. Um, but to watch for this wobble, uh, you can actually do it by either watching the wobble directly by seeing the star move, or by uh, looking at Doppler shifts in the spectra of the star to watch it coming towards and away from you. Now, um, people have been trying to do that, but the problem with that is that uh, you need a pretty big wobble. The technology is not really up to getting the very Mm. uh, small wobbles that we're looking for. And so um, we've been looking really for planets that are as heavy as Jupiter or or more heavy, and they orbit, you know, the sun with periods of many years. So it's a very long-term project, and uh, you know, it's, we're not really very hopeful that there's going to be anything come out of that 
very soon because you know we know to get the wobble you need a big planet like a Jupiter-sized planet but Jupiter-sized planets we know are formed very far away from the star and if we're interested in these sort of habitable planets like the Earth they're much less massive much closer to the star and they would hardly have any wobble effect on the star at all so it's very challenging. So maybe when Christopher grows up if he becomes an astronomer he could perhaps discover one of these planets. Well, yeah. If the technology is advanced enough if, by, by if, the time he's an astronomer. If the technology is advanced enough, yeah. And, you know, we're, get, we're getting there, but I'm not so hopeful that uh, we'll get there, get there anytime soon. The second question comes from Rob Bowman, who writes in that he's worried about Galileo, that's the spacecraft that launched last year, and that it might crash into the Earth on its upcoming flyby. And he's worried because it's got plutonium on board, and mm. I know at the time of launch people were a bit worried about launching it. Yeah, it's an interesting thing, this story, because, uh, yeah, it's controversial that Galileo was powered by, uh, effectively, a nucle- nuclear power, so it has this, this plutonium on board, which is clearly a dangerous radioactive substance. Um, but Galileo was launched um, back in October last year, um, and it's on the way to Jupiter. Um, but to get out to Jupiter, to get all the way out, because, of course, you've got to work against the gravity of the sun um, to get out to Jupiter. So one of the ways in which, the main way in which uh, Galileo has been able to do that is to use something called VEGA, V-E-E-G-A, and that stands for Venus Earth Earth Gravity Assist Manoeuvre. Okay. Um, now, what actually happens is it's called a slingshot. You might have heard it called a slingshot. Oh, like they mentioned on Star Trek Four. It had a slingshot around the sun to go back in time. Ah, okay, yeah. Well, it sounds. It sounds. I don't think Galileo's going back in time. <laughs> but anyway, we'll see. Um, so no, it's actually going to fly. It's actually flown past Venus already. It's swooped around Venus um, back in February, um, and then it's actually going to whiz around the Earth twice, come close to the Earth, use that gravitational loop to sort of slingshot it out. Um, so it's up, upcoming December. Later this year, in December, it'll whiz past the Earth, and then again in December of 1992, and then it will be out and on its way to uh, on its way to Jupiter. And I guess the there were some worries about maybe if there was a problem at launch, something exploded at launch, this plutonium might be spread into the atmosphere and cause a problem. Now, of course, that didn't happen. Um, but there's also been a subsidiary fear: is that when it comes back past the Earth. It's actually planned to come really quite close to the Earth, within about 200 miles or so. That, that's very close. That is very close. That's almost that. skimming our atmosphere, I almost think. Almost skimming the atmosphere, because the atmosphere is, you know, the definition of the atmosphere is about something like 70 or 80 miles above the surface of the Earth. So it's you know, quite, quite, quite close to the Earth, actually. And, you know, the, the fear is that maybe the calculations aren't done right. Somebody's programmed that computer, and, you know, we all know what computer programs are like. Um, so that, you know, I know what my basic programs are like. <laughs> yes, it's a challenge. So, so is error go to line 10? <laughs> yes. Um, and if, you know, if something went wrong, um, maybe it would hit the earth, maybe there'd be this big problem. Now, you know, obviously things can go wrong, so we can't deny that there might, there might be a problem. But I would say to try and put... Um, the mind at rest. Um, what we could always do is um, correct for anything that went wrong. So if there's some sort of collision on the way or some sort of little gravitational deflection from some meteorite or something that we didn't know was out there that caused a change in the orbital path, um, then there are little rocket boosters on the on the spacecraft for us to just make mm. fine corrections. So it is possible for us to, to correct that. So 
apart from the fact that I'm sure the, 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 the NASA engineers that have built this and programmed this have done it right. Well, they've shown with Voyager they're able to they've shown with Voyager. go out into Absolutely. the solar system. Absolutely. I mean, no there's many, many spacecraft missions that have been done over the years where, where it's clear that actually they don't really make mistakes like this. So that's unlikely anyway. If there was something else that we hadn't predicted, like a, like a bit of gravitational deflection or something, then we could actually correct for the orbit. Um, and so I don't think we should worry. I think we should actually be looking forward to what I'm sure are going to be some spectacular results from Galileo when it does indeed get to Jupiter. All right, well, Tim, thank you very much, and we hope you'll be back in the summer to answer more questions. Thanks, Stuart. See you then. Thanks for that, Tim. And unfortunately, that brings us to the end of this instalment of the Jodcast. But remember, if you want a cassette of the next episode, you should send us a stamped addressed envelope and a blank cassette tape to the Jodcast, Nuffield Radio Astronomy Laboratories, Jodrell Bank, Macclesfield, SK11 9DL, United Kingdom. And if you don't have a blank cassette tape, you can send a postal order for £2 made payable to the University of Manchester. If you live overseas, remember to attach some airmail stamps. And of course, you can send your letters to the same address. You can fax us on 01477 571618. You can post us a message to Usenet via sci.astro or uk.sci.astronomy. And please do copy this audio cassette and give it to your interested friends. After the music, we include a locomotive basic program that will draw the star charts that Ian mentioned earlier on. So until next time, bye for now. Or should I say, party on, dudes! Awesome. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.